I'm super excited about this podcast. Welcome to Transform Your Workplace. I am Brandon Laws, your host. Today's conversation is with Darren Chait. He is the co-author of 10X Culture, The 4-Hour Meeting Week, and 25 Other Secrets from Innovative, Fast-Moving Teams. He's also the co-founder of a company called Hugo. They're out of San Francisco. And a really cool tool. I think you should go check it out. It's a collaborative tool for teams, meeting notes, and things like that. Darren explains it at the end of the podcast. So hang on if you want to learn more about that. This book, 10X Culture, I've read a book called 10X. And I'm sure you've heard it in blog posts and other podcasts. And there's been tons of books with that title. I don't know what it is about the 10X, but I don't know. I was captured by it. I saw this book and I'm like, I got to read this. I got to know what this is all about. The 10X culture, what's in it? And when I read it, I was like, wow, they're referencing a bunch of books and have a lot of ideas that I wish I would have wrote. There's a lot of books that I've read and have taken away a lot of the same thoughts and they put it all to paper. So I was kind of envious. Like when I got done reading, I'm like, I wish I would have wrote this book. (laughs) Darren was great. You're going to really get a lot out of this podcast. We touched on everything from what does it mean to be a really effective leader and drive culture that way? How do teams work effectively together in this modern world with technology? How to make decisions? How to cut down on meeting times? how to communicate. It's so much more. You're going to get a lot. There's something for everybody in this podcast. Definitely go to Apple Podcasts. Give us a five-star review would be amazing. Written review would be awesome as well. Let me know how Darren did, how you liked him on the podcast. I think he was great. So give us some love there and feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn. I love getting messages from you. Continue to do that. And some of you even reached out to me on Instagram. That's fun too. That's kind of where I shared my personal side. And I'm okay with sharing that with you. And LinkedIn, I'm there. I'm both those places very frequently. Other places, not so much. But feel free to connect with me. And I can't wait for you to listen to this interview. So I'm going to step out of the way. Enjoy the interview with Darren Chait, the co-founder of Hugo and co-author of 10X Culture. Darren, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's good to have you. Thanks, Brandon. Great to be here. You wrote a book, 10X Culture, The 4-Hour Meeting Week, and 25 Other Secrets from Innovative, Fast-Moving Teams. You co-wrote it with Rob Lennon and Josh Lowey. Are those co-founders of Hugo? Or Yeah, so Josh is my co-founder and Rob runs marketing at Hugo. But Rob's actually an author himself. So we pulled him into our marketing world. <laughs> he comes from a writing background, which is great. He's a fantastic storyteller. It's such a fun book. And I was telling you offline, and I'll mention it for the audience, that when I was reading it, I'm like, this is the book I wish I could write. And I'm sure that you were thinking about it as you're writing this, like, man, I wish we had this when we co-founded this company, the startup, right? Is that what you had in mind? Exactly. To be honest, we actually had a lot of this book sitting in a pretty ugly Google Doc for many months, because every time we tried something that worked really well, or someone shared a great idea with us that we liked, we threw it in the doc. And that became our little Bible to building a great team culture. And only when someone gave us the idea a few months ago, did we realize that we should share this. This is exactly what everyone Mm -hmm. needs to hear and read. Yeah, the book is not that long, actually, but it's so jam-packed with ideas in here. And I'd love to jump around and ask you some questions. And, you know, one thing about the title, I love the 10x title. I've, you know, read some other books with the 10x 
concept in mind and you totally had me with this as soon as it ran across my desk i'm like i've got to interview darren on this it's gonna be great (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's the plan yeah so one of the things i wanted to ask you right off the bat was as a leader because a lot of these ideas that you have is about leadership and how you interact with the people on your teams and, and coordination so as a leader do you think it's a good idea to be friends with colleagues to be effective or is it not such a good idea That's really interesting. I think it depends on the company and stage you're at. I'm a founder of an early stage startup. I think if we don't have a type of friendship with our founding team, we're at a huge disadvantage stacked against us. And that's because we're fighting a battle together, really, right? We're we're sort of Mm -hmm. transcending this unknown world with the emotional highs and lows. We need this incredible trust. We need this incredible vulnerability and rawness that really only you have with good friends. So it's a funny question because I've actually never really thought about am I friends with my team? But when I look <laughs> at the truth and the facts, yeah, I mean, I'm sharing more personal things. I trust these people more than I do some of my real world best friends. So I think the answer is yes. Yeah, I'd imagine like at the executive level, you probably do have to be friends to be really effective. But I'm even thinking like, okay, if you have a team that reports up to you, what kind of relationship do you need with them? to really run an effective team. I guess that would be kind of the part two to that question is, what do you think there? Yeah, I think it's the same because ultimately you should be hiring people that you would want to spend the largest part of your life with. And I'm not talking about just fun to be around in the office. I'm talking about people that I respect, people that I trust implicitly, people that bring out the best in me. You know, Mm, I've I've really, something I've learned. I've been around people that make me worse. I've been around people that make me better. At a selfish level, I want people that are going to make me better all the time too. That's some sort of friendship. So I don't think it really matters. I think it's just a different way of thinking about friendship. It's not the ones I want to go on vacation with necessarily. It's yeah, the ones yeah. I want to spend the largest part of my life at the moment with. I like how you articulated that they make you better. I think that's a really good way to put it. And if you're not you know, bringing people into your team that works well with other people and also pushes you to make you better, it's probably not going to work out. Exactly, exactly. You wrote that teams who handle change the quickest will survive. Explain that. Yeah. So, you know, if you think about an early stage startup like us and we're in the B2B productivity space, we're up against a lot of big companies. These companies are better resourced. They have better R&D. They have better capabilities. They can compete on the face of it in so many ways better than we can. The difference is the bigger you become, the more resourced you become, the less agile and reactive you become. So the teams that can adapt, the teams that respond to change um, are the ones that are going to win. So if our only advantage over the big incumbents, the whales in our industry is our ability to change and adapt, we have to put all our chips on that skill, on that benefit. So that's why we strongly have that view that we as a company, all we can do is just be more adaptive, change faster and react faster than the companies that are worth 100 times what we are and have 100 times the resources. Is your organization, Hugo, are you all distributed as far as where people are working or do you have an office? We have a head office with three of us and everyone else is distributed. So we definitely subscribe to the distributed way of working. Yeah, and that comes through in the book a lot. And I think a lot of employers are moving that direction, especially at the startup level. I think you could reduce costs that way. But you you talk about this ability to adapt and move with the changing times. I imagine having a distributed workforce presents a lot of challenges, but you do talk about something called the networked organization. Can you define what that is and how it really combats the fragmentation that most organizations probably feel with having a remote team? Totally. So let me answer your first question about, which is a common thing we hear, 
that's why I wanted to talk a little bit about it. The idea that a distributor or remote team can't move as fast or, or stay as aligned is a common point of resistance or friction to adopting remote. And on the face of it, it makes sense, right? If we're all in one room, we can all overhear everything, we know what's happening, and surely then we can move faster. Our experience has been completely different uh, to that, to be honest. I, I firmly believe we're in a position to move much faster because we're a distributed remote team. Why? Because some of the practical benefits mean we're able to hire more experienced talent, more cost-effectively, more talent, so we can have more skills and more resources available to us than we could if we were everyone was in one place in San Francisco. So there's that. But the other thing is the diversity of perspectives. If we go and hire a marketing team of five males from San Francisco who have all come from Google in their marketing team, what sort of marketing strategy and even business culture are we going to have as distinct from me hiring a mom that's just returned to work on the East Coast, you know, a head of marketing I mentioned before, who's actually an author, who's written parenting books, living in Spokane and Washington State. You know, all these different perspectives mean that we're getting much better results, much faster, and with much more experience as part of the team. So I would totally debunk that myth that remote means slow or unresponsive. I love that. In this networked organization, you talk about like the tools that you're using to make it more networked and to probably make decisions mm -hmm. faster and communicate better. Define that a little bit in terms of like what you're using and how you're being effective with that. Sure. So the networked organization, we talk about organizations that are open and connected. Open or transparent organizations are very fashionable, if you like, at the moment, because that's the way the world's going. We're decentralizing the way we make decisions. We're sharing hierarchies, disappearing mm -hmm. things you often talk about on the show, I know. And I probably don't need to talk to this audience about the value of sharing that information more widely. But where the networked organization comes in is taking advantage of that. So using tools to share information more widely, we default to open, for example. So any document that's created, it's available to everyone. Every meeting we have through our own meeting notes platform is shared to the whole company. Obviously, by exception, there's times where one-on-ones and things like that don't get shared that way. But we default to everyone being in the know. So not only does that drive a better culture of transparency, engagement, honesty, everything that you want in a great high-performing team, but it means everyone's got all the inputs to contribute to the problems and find the solutions. I can't see how often I'll have a meeting with a partner or a marketing conversation. I'll share my notes in the relevant Slack channel through Hugo, and an engineer will pipe up in the Slack thread or come over and send me a message and say, hey, I was just thinking, I know this is a marketing thing, but I once saw this, or you know what could be really cool? Have you thought mm. about that? But that's a networked organization. That's open and connected, where everyone feels they can do that, and everyone has access to the tools, systems, and knowledge they need to add value in that way. You posed a few really, really good questions about decision-making. The questions are, how can we empower people to make their own decisions without having to seek permission first? How can we reduce the amount of people involved in each decision? And the last one is, when new information is generated, how do we encourage past decisions to be reassessed and adjusted? And I like how you frame those questions. So did you find the answer to that? And if so, what is the answer? <laughs> so decision-making is my absolute favorite topic in culture. Excuse me for yeah. getting a bit nerdy for a second. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> the reason is, I think, obviously, decisions are the roadmap to moving forward. Every day we're making them. Some are really insignificant about you know the coloring I'm using on this campaign. Some are really, really significant about how we're going to scale the business. Are we going to take investment? What does our product do? So honing in decision-making process is a really effective way to set the culture for your team because it's the way they're moving forward all day, every day. 
So here's what we did. And this is an idea that is sort of uh, modified from Shane Parrish's idea on the Farnham Street blog. Shane Parrish is a really experienced sort of leadership and management practitioner who has a podcast called The Knowledge Project and a blog called The Farnham Street Blog. And we, we like it a lot. But anyway, he talks about this idea of a decision journal. A decision journal is a place, and it could be a notebook or something more sophisticated, where you note down all the important decisions you make. But when you note them down, you note your decision, you note your rationale for the decision, you note the expected outcome, what you think is going to happen, and you put a date to review it, which will be in the future depending on the decision. That's a really great way to make decisions for yourself because you can actually learn. You have a feedback loop for your decisions. As humans, we love revisionist history. We think back and justify things that, you know, all the normal human behaviors. But right in black and white in front of me, I decided to take this job. This is the rationale at the time. Here's what I thought would happen. And today, six months later, 12 months later, 11 years later, what happened? So that's a great decision-making framework for individuals. But we made that a public central decision log for the whole team. So we use the type form and we share them to Slack. We also cover them and the summary of them in our all hands. And it allows the whole team to see all the decisions we're making. What that's done is created shared consciousness. Everyone now knows how everyone else thinks and how they make decisions, as well as knowing practically the things they're deciding on every day. So that, without a doubt, has been transformative for our organization. And that if you said you have to pick one strategy to take with you to your next business and next business and through your career, that would be it. I think it's so fascinating. Like we're talking about knowledge sharing and openness and you're promoting it. And that came through loud and clear in the book. And I think, you know, when you're talking about decision making, I think when we make the wrong decisions, a lot of times it's because we don't have all the information at the tip of our fingers. So, you know, do people intentionally withhold information to share it? Or is it usually the foundational, you know, knowledge base or however you're doing it? Like, what's the best approach when it comes to all that? Yeah, sure. I think there's a lot of things in play. Like we learned some interesting lessons, for example, when we started working with sales teams where naturally incentives don't promote the sharing of information because there's some element of competition. And that, you know, raises the question, well, what is the end goal? Obviously for them, it's sales, but organizationally, if you're the CEO of that company, you're trying to maximize revenue. But to do that, you need an effective, cohesive team. So maybe your incentive structure is wrong, number one. So maybe simply the way you're allocating leads is wrong so they don't have that competition, whatever it is. So I think in some cases, yeah, old-fashioned ways of thinking or old-fashioned business structures get in the way of information sharing. And we, we definitely see that. I mean, as a business, we're selling software to companies that get it already today. So we're steering clear of the organizations that aren't interested in those sorts of things. And you can spot them a mile away, ask them how they communicate, ask them the tools they're using. Ask them if they know what's happening in other departments and you see the information silos, the team silos pop up like an alarm bell. Do think that does happen? But really, you just need to fight through it because the value is so obvious. Try a week or a month of everyone knowing what's happening. Apart from how everyone feels being a part of the team and engaged, wait till you see the output, the quality of the decisions and the work that's coming out, and then you're sold. So I just think it's a temporary problem as the world of the workplace transforms to this new way of doing things. I love learning from failures and even admitting mistakes when they happen. And you wrote that if a CEO can be wrong, then anyone can. What did you mean by that? And is it really important to have the leaders at the highest level admitting mistakes or being wrong and having that become core part of the culture? So let me share a story and answer to that. 
you know, it's, I mentioned before one of my favorite strategies and approaches. I'll tell you our biggest mistake we've made, if I had to summarize that, with you building this company. Early on, I came from, a, I was a corporate lawyer by background oh, in wow. Australia before I moved to the US. And I came from a very conventional, hierarchical corporate structure that many of us have worked in over the course of our life. So I've always seen the leader as this person who's given this title, earns the most, who has the most seniority, and their job is to be the fearless leader who has all the answers. I didn't even think about that. It wasn't even a conscious decision. But when we founded Hugo, I saw my role as a co-founder exactly the same. We need to drive the team. We need to motivate mm. them. We want it to be a great place to work, but I'm the leader. I need to have all the answers. And when you take the startup journey, the ride, as you know, you're dealing with problems hour by hour. And we took the burden as founders of finding the solutions to take to the team. Now, a few problems arose there. The most obvious was we didn't have all the solutions. So here we are carrying the stress of all these problems on our shoulders, not knowing the answers, delaying taking action until we could think of some sort of answer. And in many cases, that answer being subpar because there's only one or two of us thinking about it. Secondly, the team saw that everyone needed all the answers. So everyone became reluctant to experiment, to try things, to be wrong, because we could, we saw ourselves as not being able to be wrong and not being able to, you know, present problems without solutions. And really, we hit sort of rock bottom of problems without solutions. We ended up opening up everything to the team and saying, hey, guys, we've still got this problem. We don't know how to fix it. I don't know what we're going to do. Expecting, you know, a terrible reaction. And everyone was so enlightened. Everyone was so excited that, one, we were human. Two, they had a nice, meaty challenge to sink their teeth into. And, of course, great ideas came from it because we've hired a bunch of smart people, you know, to think about these problems. And three, happy that now they too can bring problems to the table and pick everyone else's brains, that we don't have to be these little closed boxes that only have perfect solutions as leaders. So I cannot agree more with the importance of exposing failure. And failure is a very strong word, but mistakes, being vulnerable, those sorts of things. It's interesting because I wrote down from the book that you're promoting providing objectives as an executive team rather than directives. Like I think you were just describing a second ago that, you know, at the CEO level, you're expected to know everything and you push it down and you direct people and, you know, everything stops with you. But it sounds like you went through a learning process where you're like, okay, no, we're going to present our team with objectives or challenges and they're going to figure it out. Is that important for the culture? That exactly comes from that same outcome us trying to tell the team how to solve things versus directing the team and what we're trying to achieve and letting everyone solve it is really important. I mean, another principle there that, to use the word principle, comes from uh, Ray Dalio's book, Principles, mm -hmm. where he talks about the idea meritocracy, where the best idea rises, irrespective of who it came from, is very much wedded in there. We don't need to have us generating the ideas or the subject matter expert. If it's a great idea, we'll run with it. And you have to create that culture where anyone can bring their idea to the table to be able to achieve that. You spent some time talking about customers throughout the book and how it's a really foundational piece for culture. And you basically caution people inside the organization are way too far away from customers and they don't get a chance to talk with customers regularly. Then they're going to be really disconnected from you know the overall purpose and mission of the organization. So how do you get employees who are so far away to get more involved and to understand really the why behind everything. You know what? That is so easy. And that's what doesn't make sense to me. With the tools and the stack we're using nowadays, all we need to do is share, is have that information available. 
like all the other principles and values we've spoken about today feed into that. Every time I have a customer conversation, it's shared, it's centralized, it's available to everyone. I shared via Slack, so everyone sees a feed of them. It's linked and integrated with the rest of our stack. So an engineer gets a Jira bug, they can click through and see what the customer said about it. We have a culture of sharing. If I'm sharing a summary from recent customer research or sales data, why shouldn't I just share it with everyone on the team? If they don't want to read it, they don't have to read it. But everyone now has a lot of the information they need for their why. So it's really simple, practical steps, but it comes from that fundamental value shift of you know defaulting to open that everyone gets value out of having access to this knowledge. I talk about meetings quite a bit on the podcast. I've done a couple podcasts specifically on meetings. And you said two things in the book that stuck out to me. That's something that I hadn't really heard of. So you had something that's called a DRI. I think it's called a directly responsible individual for each agenda. Can you explain how you're using that and like where in the process you would assign one of those? Sure. So DRI was made famous by Steve Jobs at Apple. Mm, HubSpot have written a lot about it too. But I think Steve Jobs is synonymous with the DRI. So the DRI is about having a directly responsible individual for each objective or project or action. Now, it sounds pretty obvious, right? If typically I don't say someone's going to go send a deck out or someone's going to go work on this new project, I say Brandon's going to go work on it. But there's a big difference between just saying this person's going to do it and actually making them the directly responsible individual. So making someone directly DRI means that it's very clear to them and to the rest of the team that they're accountable for the success or the action of that work stream. So that's the obvious reason to do it. It's very clear that they need to do whatever they need to do to make that happen. And if they need inputs, they can ask for them. But we can all rest easy knowing that Brandon has that. That's his responsibility. He's got that under control. So it's just an accountable way of thinking. But there's a bigger difference, which is you as the DRI are enabled by the entire rest of the team to do what you need to do to get that done. To being directly responsible for something is a really important nuance that means it's your baby. It's for you to go and do what you need to do, and we're all here to enable you. You know, very often you'll tell kids that they're in charge of making sure of getting the family to Christmas photos by 9 a.m. You don't say to them, would you mind taking the family, getting, getting the family to Christmas photos by 9 a.m.? Why? Because the responsibility and accountability means that they've got to do whatever they've got to do to make it happen. So it's a small difference. You know, that sounds very Steve Jobs on the face of it. We use it in every meeting. It means we're all happier and accountable. Yeah, that's why the DRI idea stuck out to me. And I actually hadn't heard about that before. And I've read a lot of the Steve Jobs stuff, but I'd never heard about it. And I like it because I always think ownership over something engages people more. And, you know, when I remember back in college or even high school, and even at work, when you're working on a project or you're in a meeting where you're doing a group thing, and there inevitably becomes a moment where everybody else, except for whoever, wants to take ownership yeah. over everybody else hides exactly. and because there's no real assignment of duties and i think that's a mm-hmm. miss on whoever's leading the meeting it's a miss on their part so i love the idea exactly yeah there's a lot of interesting ideas that came out of some sort of the early apple days and some fly in the face of some of the things we're talking about today for sure but accountability and responsibility is something that apple is absolutely well known for and we really like that one Okay, explain to me how someone could keep meetings to four <laughs> hours a week. I am not buying it, okay. but you can convince me right here. <laughs> Look, I literally attended meetings for a living before we found a Hugo, and we now do it. 
I'll tell you how it's actually really easy. So we're talking about internal meetings. We're not talking about custom conversations recruiting where your job is to meet people outside the company. But internally as a business, why do you need to meet more than four hours a week? 10% of your time is how we get to the four hour meeting week. Let's look at the purpose of a meeting. Now, meetings in general, I would never really thought about what, like, why you need a meeting. As if there's, you know, think about if there's some framework or rules for when to set a meeting. Everyone sets a meeting when they feel like they need to talk to someone about something. But that's not the purpose of a meeting. Why would I set a meeting to update someone? Why would I set a meeting to sync with everyone on where we're at? Why would I set a meeting to share information? We're in 2019. We have the best tools that have ever existed to do those things. If I want to know the status of projects, I have project management tools. I have collaborative documents. I have dashboards. Mm -hmm. I have chat apps where I can go and in one second sync with 5,000 people around the world in a company on something I want them to know. And they've just received that more than they have when they're half asleep in a meeting. So why are we now telling everyone on my schedule, they have to drop what they're doing. They have to connect to a video call or come into a room and listen to me when I could have shared that information in a different way. So we redefine meetings as only for discussion, decision-making, and collaboration. If it's not for discussion, decision-making, or collaboration, then there's no meeting required. So it's simple as that. And there was nothing left in the week. There was some spitballing. There was some problem-solving workshops, a couple of things like that. But everything else just fell off the calendar. And it's not to say that now we don't interact as humans. We talk a lot about communication bandwidth. You may have read about we use video heavily. If I think of a really great idea that previously I might have called you into a meeting for and I don't think text will do it justice, I'll record a quick video, hop on my phone or on my Mac and say, hey, Brandon, mm-hmm. I have this idea. What do you think? You can see my body language. We can interact as human, but you do it on your schedule. I'm not blocking time in your calendar just to convey an idea I had. That's how we do it. Yeah, I love that. Actually, last week, I do some of this stuff too, where you know, five years ago, somebody had a question about like, you know, here's an example, Eventbrite. We use Eventbrite for a lot of events that we do. We do a lot of workshops. And somebody on the team who's managing the tool had a question about like how to process something or how to refund. I don't remember what it was. But instead of like, you know, five years ago, we would have probably scheduled the meeting. They would have sat with me for 30 minutes and I would have walked them through everything. And instead, now what I do is I hop on Loom and I record exactly. a quick video with voiceover and it's done in like two seconds. And I didn't That's have to right. meet... They saw everything that they needed to saw. They can always refer back to it if they need to. And everybody's happier. Yeah, that's right. And in a month's time, when someone else needs to know the same thing, you have the video when they're happy to get when you told them, you know, if they work best at 4 a.m., they're getting that counsel from you at 4 a.m., not when it happens to overlap in your two schedules. So it makes perfect sense, but it's just a different way of thinking. We talk about communication a lot. I think specifically you're talking about remote, but I think this is across the board, whether you're in an office, but. Now with GIFs and memes and emojis, I think at one point it was just teenagers really using that, but it's totally mainstream now. I'm using emojis with my boss. I'm using Bitmojis. I'm using GIFs to you know, present what my emotions might be. How are you using these communication tools within your teams? And you know, is it something you're promoting and embracing? Yeah, totally. So I touched on it before, but this idea of communication bandwidth is really interesting. So if you think about the communication bandwidth as in-person communication is the highest possible bandwidth, and maybe let's say a text message is the lowest possible bandwidth. The way the world's going, we're heading downstream. We're now using text when we used to call. We're using you know Slack instead of a longer email. We're using a longer email instead of hopping on the phone. You get it. That's where we are in 2019. There's a lot lost there. You know, We don't just communicate in the words as we know. 
you know, the body language, the voice, the tone, everything else that happens is a really important part of communication. So we need to manage that because we're losing a huge important part of communication. One way to do that is like we mentioned before, to actually encourage people to move up the bandwidth scale and use video and like you did then instead of sending a three-page document of instructions. The other thing we can do is look at other ways to communicate that voice. So emojis show emotion, the way I feel. They show you who I am as a person, a few ASCII characters, GIFs, emojis. They're more vibrant, higher bandwidth ways of communicating the same way. Saying that's great when you do something could mean so many different things. But the difference between a fist bump or a woohoo GIF, all these things says so much more, which you could otherwise only get if we're in the room together. So I'm a huge fan. Anything we can do to increase the richness of the way we communicate, all for it. I think it's hilarious. In fact, a funny quick story there, when we printed the book, there's a whole bunch of emojis through it. And the publisher came back to us and said, hey, we've got a technical problem. They're not rendering it in the print. I'm like, what do you mean they're not rendering? Like, they're emojis. They're in the standard ASCII character set. And they said, yeah, but we've never printed a book with emojis before uh, in the text. you got to be kidding And that was just mind-blowing for me because, I mean, if you look at our Slack channels, our emails, our investor updates, full of emojis, like you mentioned. Yeah, when you were talking about the high bandwidth communication, there's on page 13, I think this is what you're talking about. There's a pyramid graphic on page 13 of the book. And it's cool. It's like at the very top of the pyramid of email, then chat, voice, video, face-to-face. And I think the message that you're sending is you got to optimize for the high bandwidth communication. So face-to-face, it may take a lot of time. It's in-person meetings. You know, it requires a lot of energy. But you also need to be able to, you know, on the spectrum of email, you need to be able to convey the human interaction too. Yeah. So I think it's a really cool illustration. I think there's a lot to unpack there. Totally. And like what you said before, don't underestimate video. Like video is such a great medium because it means that we can do a lot of the in-person without the cost and asynchronously too, like you did when you're helping someone with Eventbrite the other day. They watch that back on their schedule. You don't have to book a time that suits you both. So we love video a lot internally. The last thing I want to ask you before I let you go is, you know, when you're building the 10x culture and the 10x team, as you describe, hiring the right people, that has got to be the biggest challenge. So describe to me the type of people that you're looking for, or maybe your methodology around hiring. Just kind of lay that all out. I know that's a big question, but tell me what you're looking for. It is. Being honest here, we haven't cracked the process. We don't have any, there's no big secrets for us that we've nailed from a hiring standpoint. It remains one of the biggest challenges, like it is for most. Having said that, all of this comes down to values and perspectives. So you need to make sure that you can show all of that in your hiring process. We need to make sure that when I'm going and meeting someone a couple of times, I can understand how they value communication, their perspectives on diversity and wanting to be part of the conversation, how they view their role as a leader, if that's relevant. And that doesn't come up. You can't ask that stuff. You're not going to get the answer. Everyone will give you the textbook. If I ask you, what are your views on how we should be generating, sharing ideas in a team environment? There's a pretty standard answer that's not going to tell me much more about you. So what we do is we mix the medium during when we recruit. So people, you learn a lot more about people by interacting with them in different ways. So the first thing we do, we ask people to send us a video where they talk about something they're passionate about for 10 minutes. So we can learn a lot about them without even getting in their way and distracting them or creating nerves or whatever it may be. We then run a typical interview process, and that's to assess skills, which are in a different category and, of course, important. And then we switch back to a social setting. Let's go for a drink. Let's have dinner. Let's chat about you as a person, your professional life from a value standpoint. What do you love? What do you hate? Who's the best person you worked with? Which boss do you absolutely 
you know, have printed on your dartboard on the wall and why. These sorts of things help you really understand people and they don't come across in a formal interview setting. So that for us is working really well, but it's definitely, I'd say, one of the most important and difficult aspects of building a business. Darren Shate, you're the author of 10X Culture, the four-hour meeting week and 25 other secrets from innovative, fast-moving teams. And you're also the co-founder of Hugo. By the way, Hugo, your website is phenomenal. I love your (laughs) website. I'm going to learn more about your tool. I was poking around before, you know, prepping for the interview and just so cool. I think what you're doing is fantastic. Can you explain for the listeners because you're going to do better justice for it. What does Hugo do? Sure. So Hugo's connected meeting notes software. We make teams meeting insights shareable and actionable with their team and their tools. So one central place for everyone's meeting insights that we then share out so everyone's on the same page. I love it. You're legitimately practicing what you're preaching in this book. Oh, yeah. That's how we discovered it. Darren, it's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast. I had a lot of fun and keep up the awesome work. Keep spreading this message. It's good stuff. Totally. Thanks so much for having me.